Good morning. So nice to be with you all today. Could you turn with me, please, in your Bibles, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 3. Feel free, if you don't have a Bible, to look that up in your smartphone. We're also going to have the words on the screen, um, but just make sure, <laughs> there's lots of ways you can see it, but make sure you can see it. So as Pete said, this morning we are concluding our One Thing series, and um, we're going to be looking at the reward. What is the reward, the prize for following Jesus? And it's kind of an unusual topic for church, isn't it? Something that we really don't actually talk about that much, and I think it's because we get a bit nervous, don't we, of getting into sort of a works mentality, like a weird thing where we're sort of earning prizes as we go, and and so I got this topic, and I'm like, well, I don't know what to do with this. So I asked Pete, um, being the fount of wisdom that he is, do you know of any, you know, books I can read or sermons that you've heard on this topic that can help me? And Pete said, yeah, no, <laughs> I can't think of a single one. Maybe just read the Bible <laughs> with a little smiley face, um, which actually probably is good advice. Um, so then I asked in our office, in the 24-7 prayer office, anyone, anyone got any, anything, any pearls on this? And Josh said, yeah, no, I, I don't know. But you should probably make a joke about Nectar Rewards cards. <laughs> So a lot of helpful input this morning has gone into this talk. Um, but we are going to take Pete's advice, and we are going to really dig in to the Bible on this one. And we're going to start in Philippians. Now, Philippians is a letter which is written by the Apostle Paul um, to the church that he planted in Philippi. And Paul is actually in prison at the time of writing this letter. And Oh, Belle, that's a near disaster. Paul is in prison and he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi to encourage them to persevere in their faith and to hold on to their faith in Jesus in the face of difficulties, which is something that as someone who's writing inside of a prison cell, he's kind of intimately acquainted with this topic of perseverance. And he writes this, we're going to start at verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's a mouthful, (laughs) quite a long reading for us today. One thing I do, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. I think that what the Bible is saying here in this passage is that it's actually really important for us human beings to know the prize, the reward, the goal that we're heading for if we're really going to persevere and move forward in our relationship with God. Fix your eyes, he says, on where you're going, the reward that God has for you. If you're going to persevere, it's important to know what you're running after. It's a bit like in shooting, like a rifle or something. Not that I'm an expert in shooting, but I'm told that if you want to hit the target that you're aiming for, what you have to do is fix your eyes on the target. But if you look at the barrel of the gun, your perspective gets all out of whack and you'll miss the target. You've got to look at the thing which you're heading towards. And I wonder if some of, this, some of us in this room, in our Christian walk, maybe we're struggling to persevere through the things we're facing because our eyes are maybe stuck on our feet, you know, our, our circumstances, the things that we're in the middle of. Or our eyes are distracted by the barrel of the gun you know, the kind of the means to an end. We're wrapped up in church, you know, in serving and going to Bible studies, kind of in the means to the end. But if you focus all your energy in the barrel of the gun and don't look ahead to the target, then your perspective gets out of whack and confused. We need to look ahead and keep our eyes fixed on the reward, the goal that we're aiming for. See, when we know the higher goal for all of our efforts, it makes it so much easier to persevere, doesn't it? I'm going to use a really silly and small example here. Um, It was Adam's birthday a couple of weeks ago, and so I took him on a surprise trip to Thorpe Park. Yes, can I get an amen for Thorpe Park? Now, my, my confession is that Um, I'm 27 years old and I've never been on a roller coaster (laughs) in my life. I blame Ireland. We don't have things like that over there. Um, Never been on a roller coaster, but Adam loves them. (laughs) He's like a kid in a candy shop. They're his favorite. And so my decision was I want to give him the best birthday. That was my goal, to see him having a great time. And so we arrive at Thorpe Park, and I said to him, any ride that you want to go on, no matter how terrifying, I will go on with you. Thank you, I know. Because it's no fun to go alone, right? And my goal is you're going to have the best day that you can possibly have. 
the thing that that I didn't know about Thorpe Park is, um, is that you have to queue, right, for like a really long time for the rides. And I'll tell you this, it's one thing to make the decision that you will accompany your fiance on any ride that he wants. You know, I can do that, I can make that decision. Yes, babe, I'll go on Inferno with you. What a lovely name. <laughs> it just, just makes you think of a lovely time. I can do that. I can kind of make that decision. But it's another thing to stand for 45 minutes underneath a ride and watch people flipping upside down, having never been upside down in my whole life, never wanted to, and hear them scream, right? 45 minutes of screams just to reach the end of the queue and get strapped into the ride yourself. It's, um, it's perseverance, right? Staying in that queue. But the way that I did it was I had to fix my eyes on the higher goal of Adam having the best day ever. That's how I managed to stay in the queue and the reward of how much he loved it sustained me. And um, we actually found some other people at Thorpe Park having a lovely time, the inimitable Nick Ashman there. He's just, the, the reward is so great for him. You can see it in his eyes. It's beautiful. We'll just flip past that now. I don't think that might be distracting for us if we look at Nick the whole time. Um, so, yeah, we don't need that one yet. We can go back. Uh, there we go. Perfect. And so it's really important, the Bible is saying, that we know what the higher goal is. We know what the reward is. We know what we're pressing towards in order that we will persevere in our faith. And what is it that we're pressing towards? What what is this reward? What is the prize? And I think first and foremost, it is Jesus. It is to know him, to experience him and encounter him. I want to know Christ, Paul says in verse 10, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, verse 8, the supremacy, the excellence of knowing this man, Jesus. And the, the kind of beautiful paradox of the faith that we're in is that Christ, we receive the reward of the person and the presence and the experience and the encounter of Christ now. You know, when we talk to him, when we worship, when we read our Bibles, we encounter him. We get the prize of knowing him every time we turn our eyes towards him. But we're also pressing on towards the prize, the reward of knowing him more. I haven't already attained it, Paul says. I have Christ, yet there is more of him to experience and to encounter. And we press on to know more of him. And ultimately, we press on until one day we get to see his face. One day, the Bible tells us we will stand before him. If our knees can kind of hold us up at that moment, we will stand before him. And he may say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't even imagine that, seeing God and hearing him say, well done, thank you for what you did. 
You know, sometimes I feel like I'm super, you know, busy and serving and doing this, that, and the other. But when I think about that moment when when Jesus is like, oh, well done, Hannah, I'm like, oh, I'm really not that busy at all, right? I don't feel worthy. But that is the prize that we run towards. Well done, good and faithful servant. What a reward to finally see God's face and be received by him with open arms. What a prize. We run and persevere, and our reward is that we'll know and encounter Christ now, and in eternity, we'll see his face. I love that Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And there's, there's quite a lot theologically going on there about glorification of God and Jesus winning our redemption. There's a lot going on in that sentence. But put really simply, Paul is also saying that we're persevering and running towards Jesus. And he is running out and persevering and running towards us. How beautiful is that? Our reward is to know Christ and to be known by him. Secondly, our reward is redemption. Being saved from our sins, released from the bondage of sin which enslaves us and sets us free. The Bible tells us that Jesus came into the world, God incarnate, incarnate like incarnate in flesh. God stepped into the world in human skin and he died on a cross in order that we would be saved from our sins, from the stuff in our lives that's destroying us and separating us from God. For God so loved the world, the Bible says that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Our reward is the forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of our relationship with God and eternity with him. And again, we receive that reward now, daily. He washes away our sins and sets us free to enjoy life with him. And if today, you know, we're struggling with sin, we're struggling with something we've done or said or thought and we know that it's separating us from God, we can come to him now in this moment, ask for forgiveness and receive the redemption that he has won for us. So we receive it now and then we'll also receive that reward in full when we get raised with Christ. Verse 11 talks about the resurrection from the dead and we get to spend eternity in heaven. Redemption is our glorious reward bought for us by Jesus at the cost of his life. So we get to know Jesus and we receive salvation for our sins. But before we finish, I want to turn to a passage of the Bible where Jesus himself actually talks about these rewards, the rewards in heaven. And I think, for me, I think it's one of the most profoundly challenging passages about rewards that I've read. So turn with me, if you've got your Bible there, to Matthew chapter 6, and starting at verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. 
If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This passage that we've just read is one of the most striking things that Jesus says on the topic of rewards. And he's talking here about the problem that we have as human beings of focusing on and aiming for the wrong reward, the wrong prize. If perseverance in our faith is attained, as Paul says, by fixing our eyes on the rewards of Jesus, knowing him and being saved by him. There's a problem, Jesus is saying here, there's a condition of our hearts that leads us to actually fixing our eyes and setting our hearts towards a reward that doesn't come from heaven and doesn't come from God and is not the reward that he promises or that he wants us to have. There's a type of person, Jesus says, he calls them a hypocrite, who prays and who fasts and who gives to the needy, but they do these things in order to get a claim from men. Their concern, their desire, the thing that they're seeking and fixing their eyes on and straining towards, to use Paul's words, is the praise of men. They want people to like them. They want people to think that they're holy. They want people to respect them and praise them and appreciate all of the good things that they're doing. And Jesus calls them hypocrites because a hypocrite is someone who is leading a double life. And what these people are doing is they're praying and worshipping and singing and fasting in such a way that they're communicating to other people a deep hunger for God. That's what we do when we publicly pray and worship and fast. We are communicating to people that we have a deep hunger for God. But these people Jesus is talking about, he says they're hypocrites because their real hunger is not a hunger for God. It's a hunger for the acclaim, the respect of the people around them, not a hunger for God. 
the thing that ultimately they're seeking is people noticing their worship, their prayer. They're not kind of seeking the eye, the attention of God, just the attention of people. Their fear of man has overtaken their fear of God. Their love of people has overtaken their love of God. I think this is profoundly challenging for us because in the Christian faith, the things that make up the Christian walk, there are actually a lot of things that give us sort of external rewards. You know, people think, wow, look at you serving, you're amazing, you must be such a good person. Or, you know, when we meet together on a Sunday, and actually we might sort of find quite a lot of reward in people sort of noticing our holiness, you know, our prayers or the way we worship or our prophesying. There's kind of a claim, respect, praises of men, certain kinds of external rewards. And it can be sort of overwhelmingly tempting at times, can't it, to kind of let people know, you know, when we've had an amazing encounter with God or we've got an amazing spiritual gift or people are chatting about their experiences and it can be so tempting sometimes to kind of like slip our card on the table, you know, let people know just what we have achieved in our Christian faith. And it's so good for us to meet together like this. It's so good. It's profoundly important for us to worship together and share our experiences with one another. It's a core part of our Christian walk. But the problem arises when we're seeking our identity and our reward in those things rather than in God himself. What if your desire to share with other people the treasures that you find in your Christian walk is beginning to take over your desire for the treasure himself? Are our hearts at the core aligned and oriented towards God or are they aligned and oriented towards each other? And what Jesus kind of says about this, this problem that we have in our hearts, what he says about it is fascinating. He doesn't say these people, they'll be taken down from their positions of leadership. They are punished or they won't be allowed a platform. They won't be allowed to preach or pray or prophesy or communicate their holiness. He doesn't say any of that. What he says is they have received their reward in full. In other words, they'll carry on in this pursuit of the praise of men and this appearance of holiness, and they will be successful. They will receive the reward they seek. People will like them. People will think they're holy. People will commend them. People will marvel at what they've done. They'll be successful in getting the reward that they want. It's just a devastating success because they'll capture the attention of people but they won't capture the attention of God. They'll get the reward that they want but how empty that reward really is. How totally meaningless and transient and empty the approval and reward from men really is. So how can you tell the difference when your eyes are fixed on heavenly rewards and when they aren't. Jesus says, you know the difference because you have secrets with heaven. 
Seek the secret place, he says. Go into your room and shut the door. The hypocrites, he says, won't pray in secret because there's no reward in that for them. What Jesus is doing here, I think, is giving us a test as to the reality of God in our lives and where our hearts are truly aligned. Because he wants us to be set free from this this built-in craving to be applauded and liked by other people. He wants us to enjoy the freedom of relationship with him, finding our identity and security firmly in him. Don't let your left hand see what your right hand is doing. Have secrets with heaven. And this was Jesus' pattern. He would regularly disappear up a mountain all night or slip away from his disciples for some private moments to spend time with and share secrets with heaven. And I love that Jesus' secret place of prayer so often in the Bible, it remains a secret. More often than not in the Gospels, we just get to hear this enticing, Jesus spent a night in prayer. He had secrets with heaven. So how do you spend your secrets? What you do in secret tells you a lot about who your God is. Archbishop William Temple said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. If your ultimate goal in life is career or success or family, then we'll pray when those things are in jeopardy. But when Jesus is the prize, when our reward, the reward our lives are pointing towards is him, we will spend our secret time with him consistently and regularly when no one is looking. We will share secrets with heaven. So rather than the fickle and fleeting praises of men or rewards of the world, Jesus says, fix your eyes on me. Look up. Make me your prize and your reward. And Paul made this exact transition. So going back to Philippians 3, where we started, Paul began his journey with the praises of men in abundance. Remember, he's like, holiness, I was the best. Zealous, I was the best. He started his journey with praises of men. But when he met Christ, when he met Jesus, he encountered the true prize of the supreme knowledge of the experience of Christ. And everything else, he says, the praises, the acclaim of men, the security, the wealth, the self-righteousness, everything else, he says, he counts a loss. The word that we read in the NIV is rubbish, which is fairly polite and altogether, I think, a little too tame to really convey what it is that Paul is saying. The Greek word for it is skibalon, and it was a very literal way of saying animal feces, feces, a dirty, stinking pile of... I mean, I'm not one to swear in a preach... But you you can imagine what other words you might want to use to describe that pile on the ground of animal feces. This is not quaint or faint. It's like strongly, deeply felt, like emphatic language from Paul spilling up from his gut and into his pen. The treasures of this world, self-righteousness, the praises of men without the person of Jesus, it's Gibble on. It's a dirty, stinking pile of feces compared to knowing the real Christ, to looking him in the face. 
to receiving his reward, the reward of knowing him. I just, I want nothing to do with it when I compare it to knowing Christ. Do you know, Paul has gone from a ruler of his peers, a leader in society, highly respected and revered, wealthy, holy, at the peak of society, to sitting chained to a Roman guard in a stinking Roman prison. And he says, I have found it. I have found the real rewards. The rest is nothing compared to this. And the reward of Jesus that I'm encountering now and an eternity with Jesus that I'm setting my face towards is better than anything else that this world can give me. What Paul lost was his standing among his peers. What he gained was a standing before God. What he lost was his self-righteousness. But what he gained was the righteousness of Jesus. I've tasted it, he's saying. All the world reveres everything you think is worthy and valuable, your career, your esteem, everything that you crave and strive after that you've made your reward. I have tasted it, and it is nothing. It is skibalon. It is animal feces compared to knowing Jesus. Forgetting what is behind. One thing I do, I press on towards the goal the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus. And this is the thing that sustains us in our faith. You know, it's fascinating when Paul writes to churches who are facing persecution. You know, they're being beaten regularly. They're being attacked in their homes. When Paul writes to these churches in these circumstances, his consistent prayer for them is not that the persecution ends, which is crazy. His consistent prayer is that they would know Christ better. So how do we seek our reward? How do we make sure our eyes are on him and not on the, our feet or on the barrel of the gun? I think there's a host of ways, but let's close today looking at, at just two of them. I think firstly, we share secrets with heaven. When Jesus is warning us about these false rewards, go into your room, he says, shut the door. I love how practical and pragmatic that advice is. Just go in and shut the door. Go to the secret place. It's strikingly obvious, that advice from Jesus. Nurture intimacy in private with him where no one else can see and no one knows so that you might find him in the secret place of prayer and worship and receive the reward of knowing him. Make him your treasure. Spend all your effort pursuing him. You know, our careers, our family, money, respect before men, all of these things are totally fine as long as our perspective is right, as long as our eye is fixed ahead, as long as our treasure, our real reward, the thing that, that drives us is him. And the way we know that he's our treasure is that we spend ourselves and our secrets with him, encountering him. And secondly, I think we make praise our priority. We worship. Go into your room, Jesus says, shut the door and pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first thing we do, he says, when we're in secret with God, when we've acknowledged who he is, our Father, the first thing we do is hallowed be your name. 
It's a funny word, hallowed, isn't it? It's not really one that we ever use, but it's interesting that the NIV, which has translated everything to make it relevant and contemporary, they keep this word hallowed in, which I think is a good thing because there isn't really another word that describes what is happening in that moment. To hallow something means to treat it as sacred and ultimate. It means to seek to make something your ultimate concern, to make it the most crucial and ultimate thing. It means to glorify God to remember his majesty and splendor. So we become secret worshippers. And when we live lives that are based on and built around worship, enjoying God, enjoying the reward of his presence, then we build up to that moment when we step towards eternity and see the face of God. I want to close just quickly, if I've got time time with um, a story from a guy called Brennan Manning who some of you might have heard of and um, it's one of those stories that you hear and it sort of leaves a bit of an imprint on your soul Um, so I want to share it with you guys and Brennan talks about meeting a lady um, and she came to him quite desperate and she said look Brennan my dad he's in his 80s He's, um, he's, he's dying of cancer, and we've asked the pastor of the church to come round and pray with him. Three times we've asked, and he's been too busy preparing his sermon. Bad pastor. So she said, would you please come and pray with him? And he said, give me 10 minutes. Where's your house? So Brennan Manning goes in to this guy's house, and, um, and he goes in to the room where this lady's dad is and there's an empty chair right beside his bed and the the man is sitting there kind of propped up on his pillows and Brennan came in and said ah I see your empty chair you're you're obviously expecting me and the guy said no I've no idea who you are why are you here (laughs) and Brennan says oh I'm I'm Brennan your daughter asked me to come pray with you and he said ah okay Brennan shut the door so Brennan closes the door And he says, let me explain to you the empty chair. It's not for you. (laughs) He said, "Um, I don't want to ever tell my daughter this, but I've been a Christian for, you know, 70 years or whatever, and I've never known how to pray. I've never known how to speak to God, how to spend time with him. And so about 20 years ago, I went to our pastor and I said, I don't know how to pray. And I'll be honest, I'm not getting anything from your sermons on prayer. (laughs) To which the pastor said, "Uh, let me give you a book. So he reached into his drawer and pulled out a book by a theologian called Hansers von Balthasar, which is a mouthful. And he said, read this. It's one of the best books on intercession written in the last century. So the man takes the book home and he reads it. And he says, Brennan, in the first three pages, I encountered 11 words that I had to look up in the dictionary before I gave up. And he said that was the moment I I gave up. I just thought, I can't do it. I don't know how to pray. Until, he says, four years ago, I was chatting with my friend, George. He's really not that spiritual bloke. I never thought of him as much of a theologian, but he just randomly said to me one day, you know, prayer is really the simplest thing in the world. And so he asked him, how is it so simple? How do you do it? And he said to him, well, what I do is I I get an empty chair and I sit it down in front of me. And in faith, I imagine Jesus sitting on the chair. And then I just have a conversation with him. And the guy said, well, that sounds quite easy. So he said, Brennan, for the past four years, I've been doing that every day. 
I spent two hours just chatting to Jesus. And he said, is it, do you think that's prayer? <laughs> Brennan said to him, that is the simplest, most beautiful explanation of prayer I can imagine. So he anoints him with oil, he prays for him, and he leaves the house. A couple of days later, um, the, the guy's daughter phones Brennan to let him know that her father had passed away. And so Brennan said, well, did he, did he go peacefully? And the woman said, I, like, I think so. He, um, he actually called me to his bedside around two. He made one of his classic corny jokes, and then he kissed me on the cheek. And then I went out to do some errands, and when I came back, I found him he had died. And she said, but there is, it's the strangest thing. Really weird. I can't understand it. When I came back and I found him, moments before he passed, he leaned his head over, and I found him lying with his head on this empty chair beside his bed. He had made Jesus the reward of his life, the pursuit of his secret time, his secret place. He had found the prize. And then there's that beautiful transition where he just leans his head against him and passes into heaven where he sees his face. And his reward is for an eternity spent with Jesus. I'm going to pray for us quickly. Jesus, I thank you that you are our beautiful reward. Thank you that you are our prize now and that you will be our prize for eternity when we get to spend it with you. Would you come into each of our hearts now? Show us what it means to know you, to encounter you, to share our secrets with you. In Jesus' name, amen.